um, I don't know, I won't say invited necessarily, but I just saw like, oh, all I need to do comics is some paper and pen and I can start drawing. Hey, this is The Big Story. I'm Alex Morrissey. Thanks for joining me. I'm at the point in my book or the rewriting of my book for the however many times. I'm at a point where I can glimpse a structural breakthrough and an improved clarity of voice, but it's not so much in the actual writing of the book at the moment. It's more about doing the writing about the writing of the book. So I had some insights that have me focusing on a lot of the character promises and plot promises and things that I knew, but I had not put down on the page in a way that made the reader go, ooh, I get this. And not spelling it out, but really breadcrumbing with a bigger crumb. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but it's been actually pretty exciting. And it is great to sit down and feel purposeful at the keyboard. So pretty excited about that. I'm also doing a lot of preliminary work on the comic series that I've taken the reins over on, which is pretty exciting to think about where I can take this series and bring this arc to a conclusion. Looking forward to sharing more of that. Today's guest is Matt Madden. Of course, you know that because you clicked on this. Matt reached out to me months ago after we had this kind of supportive exchange about his book, 99 Ways to Tell a Story. And it was a phenomenal talk. He uh, is this rare split between an artist and an academic, uh, not something very common in the comic book business. So it was really an insightful conversation full of some interesting turns. And I hope you enjoy them too. So this is me with Matt Madden. There's a term which I never even knew existed, which is what uh, T TBR, which is to be read. Um, <laughs> right. You know, which is, I've just always called it my, you know, my reading list or my books, my stack of books, but um, yeah. And you know, but there's that. And then there's like all the things you need to watch, all the things you need to listen to. Like the list is just so endless. Absolutely. Yeah. And, over, and it's well, I, look, I look for excuses to, you know, if there, if there's some pre reason to catch one thing or another, and like, so maybe Moon Age Daydream was actually playing uh, in a movie theater in town. So I was like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'll watch it on video, but to get to see it with a good sound system and a, on a big screen is probably, it sounds like it's a, it's a very, you know, it's more of an immersive um, experience yeah. of Bowie's in his totality than a straightforward documentary or interview kind of uh, movie. So it was worth seeing it in that context for sure we live in Asheville, which is very small so we have, we have well we have two arts theaters but uh speaking of this is the weirdest totem this came from david bowie's apartment really right. what is yeah. it it is a metal chrome backsplash tile for the kitchen oh wow yeah <laughs> and how'd you come into the possession of that or is that uh not public information no it's okay um the the family sold the apartment in 2020 mm -hmm. 
So in the fall of 2020, they sold the apartment and the new owners were doing some renovations. And I was visiting my friend and his phone rang and he said, he hung up the phone and he goes, hey, do you want to go to David Bowie's apartment on Wednesday? Wow. <laughs> I'm like, um, yeah. So we went over there. They were looking to see if his, his company could remove things from the mm-hmm. apartment. So I went over there with tape measure in hand and camera <laughs> ready to go. And we spent about an hour to an hour and a half there just being in the space, which was just mm-hmm. phenomenal. And they were clearly redoing the kitchen yeah, and the, and the stack of these untouched tiles. And I'm like, well, I'm taking a tile. Nice. Yeah. My thievery is just there. I'm okay that's, with a, it. that's a worthwhile, that's a worthwhile one that I would say for sure. Yeah. Matt, where, um, where do you live? I'm in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. I've been here since 2016. <laughs> Uh, we, okay. My, so my wife, uh, Jessica Abel, is also a cartoonist. Um, we've been together since, uh, well, we've been married since 2000, together since 1997. And in that time, we've lived together in uh, Chicago, Mexico City, New York, uh, and a couple of different places in, in Brooklyn, um, and then and had kids there. And then when their kids were two and four years old in 2012, uh, we picked up and moved to Angoulême, France, where I lived, ended up living for four years um, on the pretext of a, a residency at a thing called La Maison des Auteurs, which is a, one of the few residencies specifically for cartoonists in the world, really. Um, and uh, so lived there from 2012 to 2016. And um, then Jessica got a job at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts um, as the chair of their new, relatively new illustration program. So uh, we found ourselves in Philadelphia. And uh, it's been great. I mean, we, you know, it was on our radar. We visited over the years and always liked it. But when we decided we weren't going to move back to New York just because it was just going to be too much of a too much of a slog with two children. And, you know, um, the fact of never having to deal with like the New York City school system because our kids were too young to have to deal with that whole thing uh, was like such a relief that, um you know, Philadelphia is relatively straightforward uh, in that sense. So, um, so yeah. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So <laughs> first off, let's great appreciation for France um, and their love for cartooning. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually going back uh, on Sunday, um, flying back to Angoulême. The French edition of Ex Libris uh, is being published by L'Association, who's my main French publisher. Um, it's actually coming out in February, but they're, they're, we're doing a pre-release event at the Angoulême Comics Festival, uh, which starts uh, a week from today, a week from tonight, actually. Nice. So opening of the festival. Um, and then I'm actually going to go to Spain for a few days. It's going to be a bit of a whirlwind, but uh, the Spanish edition of Ex Libras came out uh, last spring and um, they weren't able to bring me over at the time. So they're going to piggyback a little mini book tour uh, in Barcelona and Madrid uh, right after the festival. Then I'll be back. But, um, but yeah, France, uh, 
you know, people have, Americans have a, a bit of an out, a blinkered notion of just what a, you know, paradise of comics um, France is. Uh, it's not like uh, comics are really considered on the same level of uh, literature and cinema and classical music, the way you, the impression you, you get sometimes when people talk about France. Um, but it is much more of a prevalent part of the culture. Um, and it's not as purely associated with uh, superhero comics and newspaper strips mm -hmm. as it was in the U.S., at least until 10, 15 years ago. Um, uh, and, I, you know, my experience you know, living in Angoulême was interesting because it's not really uh, it's, it's sort of the comics capital of um, France, but only by default because they established a festival there in the seventies and eventually that led to them opening a museum. And now there's this, this big complex, uh, called La Cité Internationale de la Bande Dessinée et, et de l'Image. Um, it's like this, uh, complex of, um, you know, the museum, a library, the residency program, uh, a, a really nice bookstore, a restaurant, a repertory theater, like, you know, film, film theater, um, a restaurant that goes in and out of business. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, and, and, you know, the city has in various administrations um, gotten into, you know, embraced the aspect of comics. So like in Angoulême, uh, all of the street signs, there's that classic French street sign, you know, which you've seen in, uh, in movies and stuff. There's sort of a blue uh, rectangle with a white, you know, little white line frame around it. And then the street name in white yeah. in a sort of, you know, chunky serif font. Uh, in Angoulême, those, they have those blue signs, but instead of that white rectangle, it's actually a word balloon that, ha that has the uh, street names in them. Oh, very cool. Um, and I found living there... <laughs> Uh, and knowing, you know, and my kids going to the local public school and just like hanging out with shopkeepers and the local doctor and dentist and whatever, there was a, you know, there was definitely like a kind of mixed reaction, a mixture of like admiration and resentment of, you know, all this comic stuff going on sure. around you. Um, so yeah, so, you know, uh, a, a lot of people, are, there, there's still an attitude similar to America where like comics are sort of kid stuff, even if there's clearly like great stuff. And when you, when you, I find when you press any one person, often turns out they don't just read, you know, everyone's like, Oh, I read, you know, Tintin or whatever when I was a kid. But mm -hmm. if you go to people's houses, actually you're much more likely to have contemporary, you know, art comics or even like, you know, current fantasy and whatever's, you know, and increasingly manga on their bookshelves. So, uh, you know, um, it's I would say it's uh, it's a few steps along in, in the general cultural reception of comics, uh, while still not being the utopia that sometimes we Americans uh, imagine it to be. <laughs> well, we want it to be out there, Matt. We want to have that utopian society that you got to have that. Comics. Color, yeah. yeah, sure. Sure. So how did comics come into your uh, radar? Like, were you young? Were you a fully formed human? Like, when did they uh, show up in there? I didn't really get into them until I was much older. I, I've read them off and on throughout my life, among other things that I was into. Um, so the other thing about me is that I lived in Paris for five years when I was a kid. My uh, dad 
is a retired, he was a, he was a lawyer and for a firm that had an office in Paris. And I think my mom basically like, you know, noodled him into begging for a post over there. Sure. Um, so I lived there from the age of three to eight years old. And um, ironically, that's the one time in my life when I was really into Marvel comics. I used to read Marvel comics in translation. There were these uh, collections called Strange, which is you know, strange in French. Mm-hmm. And it would, each one would be kind of three or four Marvel comics. It would be like Daredevil and, um, uh, you know, uh, various stuff that was coming out in the early 70s, late 60s. And, um, you know, I would buy those on the newsstand and uh, along with some of the French comics. And then we're, for whatever reason, as soon as I moved back to the States in 1976, um, I totally dropped my interest in superhero comics. I never really read them again. Hmm. But um, uh, years later, I, you know, when I was a teenager, it was like a, a cascade effect of a bunch of stuff in a very short period of time between the age of, you know, 16 and 18, I discovered, um, uh, the old heavy metal, you know, the, the sort of first run of heavy metal from the seventies when they were printing Mobius and Nanki Bilal and stuff like that, uh, and weird strips like the bus. And, um, Somehow I got hip to Crazy Cat early on. And okay. then there was that yeah. first reprint of, you know, Crazy Cat, The Art of George Harriman, that, that Patrick McDonald and some other people, uh, it's like three authors put together. Uh, and that totally blew my mind. And that, that also somehow led me to Little Nemo and the work of Windsor McKay. Um, I found a, just totally at random, found a collection of early Robert Crumb comics, a book called Head head comics. I think there was actually, you know, it's one of those things where like how times have changed, like this is published by like Simon and Schuster or something. And it was just like right. super, you know, hardcore, you know, excerpts from the early zap magazines. Um, and what else? So just, and then, and then, you know, as I started read up on this kind of stuff and talk to people about it. Not, and I didn't really have other friends who were into this stuff. It was really sort of a solitary investigation. At some point, I guess I discovered Mouse and that led me to Raw Magazine and that led into, you know, so, um, and this is like the late 80s. Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, and meanwhile, that's when like Love and Rockets was really hitting its stride. Uh, Dan Cloud, like the Fanographics was having its sort of first wave of successes with um, Dan Clouds when he was still doing Lloyd Llewellyn, mm-hmm. the, you know, the detective comic and uh, Pete Bag's Hate. And um, uh, I was in Ann Arbor at the time, which is where I got my undergrad degree in Complet. And I was a, you know, college radio DJ. And um, that led me to uh we were doing a fundraiser um and i've told this story a bunch of times but there was a cartoonist named terry laban who's still out there he actually lives in philadelphia now uh coincidentally um and he was doing like political comics political cartoons in the local paper and i also had seen in some bookstores around town he had a mini comic called unsupervised existence and i didn't even really know what a mini comic was i just seen this little comic book with a sort of underground style to it and so i called him up and asked if he would design a, a button as a as a premium for our you know college fun radio fundraiser and he invited me over to his studio and we hung out and he told me all about mini comics and he gave me a bunch of random mini comics he had lying around uh including something called the amazing cynical man by a cartoonist named matt fizzell who kind of invented 
or at least sort of formalized the mini comics format that we know today. Uh, and it turned out he lived in the area as well. So um, they invited, they said they would, they got together every week and had coffee and, you know, doodled in their sketchbooks and talked about comics. Um, and they invited me to come along with them. And, and, uh, um, and Terry gave me a copy of a few copies of uh, an old magazine called Fact Sheet Five, which was kind of like a printed internet of comics and zines, where you it would just come out once a month or bi-monthly, full of listings. And it was just a very brief capsule review, uh, the address, and you know whether they take trades or if not, how many stamps or you know dollars you would need to, to send right. to like get this thing through the mail. Um, and that really gave me the motivation to, and and the realization that was like this like easy point of entry to just like do my own thing. Uh, I hadn't, I didn't really have a scene that I was part of. So just like finding this like mail, mail art world out there that I could just send stuff out to uh, was a real revelation. And uh, so what started as kind of a, a, as a hobby I was doing on the side, you know, became more and more of a, an obsession. And uh, you know, here I am today. It's so it is fascinating how the um, the underground network of whatever the thing is, whether it's you know the the hardcore punk scene from you know the early to mid mid eighties, you know, getting cassettes around from one another to one another. I mean, there was this whole sort of network, and the same thing is applied for this underground comic scene. Yeah, to me, there's a I don't know, there's some there's a story, there's a there's a documentary, there's something that needs to be told to express this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the larger DIY DIY ethic, which does go back largely to the, to the punk scene and to people, you know, independent labels, putting stuff out. Um, and you know, the buzzcocks putting out their, you know, first EP on their own in the UK and 1977 or whatever. Um, that's a big part of it along and it goes back further i think to like um sci some of the early sci-fi fanzines i think go back to the i think some of the earliest go back to even the 30s you know these self-published um you know fan fan publications devoted to, to science fiction mm-hmm. there was a cool exhibit when i was uh visiting new york one time when i was in college it must have been the late 80s called sami's which was, it was actually, it was a comics and zine show, but they were drawing connection to the Soviet era, you know, Samizdat, which is like self-publishing in, in, in the former Soviet Union. That was like this very underground act of resistance of having this, you know, underground uh, publishing world. So um, yeah, all these threads come together and they, they very much are a part and parcel of, I think the, the socio-political times that we grew up in and the technology, because this is all of course, pre, internet and if you wanted to share stuff with people and get it out in the world you could find people in person or you could trade stuff through the mail right there i mean you know i would go to comic conventions in the 80s and they were very different collection of people than it is today or at least that same group of people are in there but they're filtered through a much you know wider cultural sampling and we I, the people I would meet, they were, everybody was insanely passionate about mm-hmm. either a specific thing or the entire thing. Like there was right. this real interesting, you know, there are people who were like, you know, 1984, 85, like obsessed with Doctor Who. Yeah. And I'm thinking like that show that's on PBS, like how do you know about this? Like it was so like 
random. Sure. But yeah, I, I think there's this. Where yeah, was I that think it, I think at that time, if you were going to go to any kind of comics or sci-fi convention, it's because you were already pretty much had drunk the Kool-Aid and were like super into it. Yeah. You know, I don't think you find a lot of like casual observe, casual visitors uh, at a Comic-Con <laughs> in those days. Um, no, because no, why? Because like you were saying earlier about it being kid stuff, I mean, that was the predominant understanding tenfold. In 1983, 84, people weren't thinking, oh, well, there is some interesting stuff being done. No one said that. It was just sure. funny books. Yeah, where absolutely. Was, where, was that show, where was that show, the uh, the Russian lensed? You know, it was like in what we would now call a pop-up space, I think. It was like an early on um, Williamsburg. I feel like it was okay. one of the first times I went to Williamsburg, kind of in the... Um, I said the eighties, but it might've been, yeah, late eighties, early nineties, I think. Yeah. All right. Uh, I was I was in art school in New York City uh, studying comic books. <laughs> you think they would have mentioned that to us? Uh, it was one. I know I can't remember. There are two guys that were some of the main curators. There was a guy named Stephen Serio, who I think is C E R I O. Who, he's still out there. I, th I think I occasionally see work from him. And another guy who had a pen name that is escaping me right now. Um, and. Um, it was an unusual exhibit. I remember it was like a sort of warehouse space or an old storefront. And it had um, part of the exhibit was like all these zines hanging from strings on the on the ceiling. And you could just sort of like pick something up and flip through it and, and, and keep on moving around. Uh, That's cool. And I, I remember I wrote to one of the guys afterwards saying, oh, that was cool. I kind of wanted to just grab one. And he's like, well, and he chided me for not stealing it. He's like, that's what it was there for. You should have stolen it. <laughs> Which is so of the ethic at the time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, that's so cool. Uh, so what, like, what was like, what was the feeling for you? Like when you first, because I'm sure you had the sense of, I don't know, like, did you feel like you were given permission, you know, in Ann Arbor, like to like, hey, you two can do this by like meeting with that cartoonist or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the comic, I mean, I think even without uh, meeting Terry LeBan and Matt Vazal was crucial for me because it made me part of a community that I wasn't directly part of. But even before that, I, you know, had just through my own passion for for comics and and my sense of their potential had started to do stuff on my own and just in sketchbooks and um right now i'm like going through we moved uh back in the spring to a new house here in, in philadelphia so i've been going through a lot of our old boxes trying to like put stuff in order um and we're going to give some stuff to the uh billy ireland library in columbus some of our old mini comics archives and correspondence from that time because at this point it really is kind of a time capsule of, of an era that uh is uh you know bygone in a lot of ways mm -hmm. uh of the you know the mail correspondence and some of the early you know uh conventions that we used to have but um but yeah i always felt uh like um i don't know i wouldn't say invited necessarily but i just saw like oh all i need to do comics is some paper and pen and i can start drawing mm -hmm. um i didn't have the and also because i was discovering stuff that was more offbeat you know underground comics and um 
you know, uh, even before mini comics, I didn't have, I, I think if you grew up reading superhero comics, you're more likely to have a sense of like, oh, it's, it's a very rigid professional hierarchical world. And you have to start in the mail room and, you know, almost like a corporation, work your way up to the top or go to art school to get the, the, the drawing skills, you know, go to the Kubert school to have the, you know, the, the anatomy chops to be able to draw. I never right. had that sense that like there were particular skills I needed to know. And, you know, I was already really into uh, punk rock and post-punk and new wave and, and that, that, that aspect of DIY was already instilled in me, I think. So that might've played mm -hmm. into it as well. Um, but yeah, once I met Matt and, and, uh, and Terry and we started hanging out and meeting other cartoonists, um, and there weren't a lot of us, but there were a few between, I was in Ann Arbor and, uh, Matt eventually moved to Hamtramck, which is a Polish kind of a mm -hmm. mini, it's actually a municipality within greater Detroit. Um, where his wife has actually been the mayor for a very long time. Uh, but um, we would go hang out at a cafe there sometimes, or we'd hang out in Ann Arbor uh, or Nipsilani where he was living, which is where um, Iggy Pop grew up. And um, and they took me to my first comics convention. I went to the Chicago Comic Con in probably 1989 or 1990 or so. Um, and... Uh, going there with someone, some people who are, you know, had been doing it for a while was great because they introduced me to people and kind of showed me the artist alley and like showed me what people did there. I don't think we tabled or anything. We just went to, to right. go check it out, you know? And, uh, so yeah, so it, it was great. Um, you know, I, I do think an advantage of, uh, today's cultural world is it's definitely much more imitational. Like, you know, if I'd been, uh, you know, a person of color, if I'd been, you know, there were a lot less women involved in that. Although, you know, there's, sure. there was, there were definitely women doing, you know, underground comics and mini comics at the time, uh, as much or more than you'd find like in the music scene, say, but I didn't see a lot of different skin colors, you know, the, anyone queer, only if they were like outrageously out in a sort of, um, divine sort of way, then they'd sure. make themselves known. But I think they're, you know, if you were gay, you were not, you're not necessarily going to be out there doing proudly open comics. So, I, so just qualifying my, the access is like, I was also yeah. a young college educated white guy who, you know, didn't particularly feel I, you know, there's a certain entitlement there to feel like I can just show up in any scene and make myself at home, which I don't think everyone else had that at the time. Um, but, no, that's, uh, but yeah, that's well, so yeah. Cause I mean, looking at it from a, you know, my, my shifted perspective over because my attention was very much on working for Marvel or DC mm -hmm. And, but, you know, our makeup of our classmates, you know, studying comics. I'm sorry, where did you was, study? Oh, at the at School of Visual Arts. Okay. So, because I, I taught there later on, but I, you're, we, you would have, we would have been still under, undergrads at that time, I suppose. What year did right, you graduate? Yeah. Uh, 91. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I finished college in 1990. So we're the same generation. So, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, you, so, so did you go to art school thinking like, this is what I need to do if I want to be a superhero cartoonist? I need to like go to art school, <laughs> go to SVA and um, study with, you know, uh, Harvey Kurtzman and who's there it, at the time? Eisner. Carmine, Carmine yeah. Infantino or uh, Carmine Wilhelm. Yeah, Carmine Salman took over. Yeah, yeah. I had, I had Sal. I love Sal. Sure. Yeah. It was great. Um, yeah, I'm mean, glad I went there versus the Kubert school just because it being in New York city oh, really offered me a lot more access to 
so many more things than just comic books. Absolutely. Uh, That's SVA has that huge advantage that I saw it all the time. I mean, I taught there for 11 years and what, you know, in teaching, like from the second year we taught, my wife and I taught a storytelling class together and I taught an ink drawing class. And later I also did some senior classes and stuff like that. And seeing, seeing that development of, you know, kids, coming to school always with a pretty rigid idea of what they wanted to do, whether it's superheroes mm-hmm. or manga or underground or whatever. But being in New York and being surrounded by all this amazing culture and classmates from very different backgrounds, um, in- inevitably would just, you know, by the end of their time there would be opened up to whole whole new perspectives. Yeah. And, and you, know, you were talking about this sort of the expression, the people making these things. And it's, it is unique because while the product is relatively narrow on the mainstream side of comic books. The people making it aren't. It, it was quite a diverse group of people. You mm-hmm. know, color, skin color really didn't seem to be an issue. Uh, sexual orientation, man, there were there were plenty of plenty of gay people that we that were just part of the network, and nobody thought twice. They were just you're based basically on your skill sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There are far fewer women at the time, for sure, and that is i don't think it due to marvel or dc it was just the fandom of comic books really wasn't sort of as broad for mm-hmm. you know all parties involved um yeah i think manga's really changed that like we could notice yeah. that in the years that we were you know we started at um sva in in 2001 and left in 2012. And that kind of coincides with the the you know exponential ramp up uh you know before that you know, in the 90s, people were reading some manga and some anime, and some of us saw stuff when we were kids, depending on what city you grew up in, you might have seen, you know, uh, Simba the Lion or, or uh, mm-hmm. you know, Ultraman or whatever. Um, but it really wasn't at that kind of like peak saturation that started to happen in the early 2000s, where all this new stuff started to show up and you had uh, Viz and Tokyo Pop showing up and starting to to print lots of stuff. And that we really saw that in the student body that like from year to year, it went from something like 60, 40 male, female to, to par to, I think at this point, SVI might even be slightly more female than male students. It's I mean, amazing. Then there, you know, then there's, you know, the whole development in, in gender fluidity and stuff too. So that's <laughs> a little asterisk on, on that binary there, but um, we'll be, we'll be, yeah, we'll be, we'll be flexible sure. with our numbers in this point. But yeah. yeah, it's a, I mean, but it's, I mean, to me, it's a great thing because, you know, I remember like when I got into the business, I mean, Amanda Connor just started in the business Mm. and like, you know, and I was like, she could draw, like, I was like, oh man, she just rocked and she still rocks. So Mm. like, it, it really wasn't a matter of like anything, but like, she just wanted to crush it and she did. Yeah. Love Amanda. Yeah. Well, what's weird about SVA uh, as an institution is that it's run very much the model for the faculty, as you might know, is that uh, the the faculty are all supposed to be working artists and Mm -hmm. not like a faculty. So there's 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 not faculty meetings. There's not. Um, you know, we have a very small cubby of an office where we're, you know, we can theoretically meet with students and stuff, but, um, you know, over, over the, there, you know, I was there, like I said, for 11 years and there are people that I, I never met or maybe met once in passing, um, who taught not just in the illustration department, which was pretty big, but even within the cartooning, uh, mm-hmm. department, I think I only actually met Phil Jimenez in person once or twice. You know, we, we would have like emails together with the, with the faculty, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, you know, 
it's a strange model, and I, I see the wisdom of it and the idea that um, you want to have working pr- professionals as your teachers, and you you know you want to respect their the time they need to work uh-huh. on their you know their actual work, but um, but it also makes it hard to create a cohesive kind of academic program uh, and, and curriculum if teachers are kind of coming and going and no one's talking to each other, especially when you get to a point where you have Klaus Janssen and Gary Panter teaching two different sections of the same, what's supposed to be the same class. You know, that's like right, right, right. Kind of yeah. quite an extreme, you know, range of, and what we were all friends, everyone got along, but, but I'm just saying you want to make sure that like Gary and Klaus have like a conversation page like what what principles are you touching on? So at least even if it's like a very different angle, you know, it's coordinated in some extent. So there sure. aren't like big big gaps, you know. So uh the, it's the nature of the whole thing. But I, yeah. I mean, but then again, I think you you muddy the water if you try to make it some sort of institutional thing where, you know, like my mind's like, okay, well, could you have like 10% of the faculty be like, you know, full time teachers? But then they're the sort of the inside and the outside people, and then it becomes a problem. So, yeah. Well, I mean, something like that, though, you, you need to do like they, we do have like uh, a cartooning coordinator that for a long time was Keith Marison. I don't know if he was around. No, I don't think so. Um, well, he wouldn't have been on when you were a student. Um, he, he's closer to our age, but uh, he's a he's a painter and really into comics. And he was, I think, he basically created this position for itself and pitched it to Tom Woodruff, the department head, to give like an, a little bit extra salary to be kind of a sort of point person for the comics curriculum that could sort of talk about what classes need to be in place, what needs to be, you know, as digital technology starts coming in, you know, we need a new studio, a new classroom with like mm-hmm. Wacom tablets and then with iPads and so on. Um, and Jason Little took over that job. Um, and he's been doing that for the last five or six years now. Um, so that's like, that's like one sort of like institutional link to, to trying to hold things together. But, you know. Yeah, well, I like that. I mean, I don't feel that there was anything like that when we were there because I think it was just kind of the the redheaded stepchild in the 80s they just uh were focused on other things i would say yeah yeah you know and the fact that it's illustration and cartooning department was something we always you know railed against a little bit even if you know tom woodruff who was very much an illustrator you know he was very supportive of the comics and he understood he would say that like the kids who are signing up for cartooning now are the kids who are signing up for painting in the seventies or like the weird kids who are like, you know, yeah. looking for something new to do. And, that, and that's true. And I'm glad he, he saw that. But for example, there, there'd be like a master show. I don't know if this was the case when, when you were there, like not in that, like the junior show, the junior year, you do like a big um, portfolio project mm-hmm. and it was total. The whole thing was designed around oil painting illustration, you know, which is like what, what Tom and a lot of the SVA faculty does. Um, So it was a big, a really beautiful gallery space uh, over on on Chelsea. Um, And all the illustration students come and have these beautiful, like giant large scale watercolors and like, you know, uh, photographic collages and stuff. And then you got a bunch of freaking you know, undergrad cartoonists with their like blue line paper pasted on the wall with, with, with <laughs> pencils showing and stuff. And it looks like crap because it's not, you know, co- comics pages are not meant to be presented that way. You know, right. It was, it was always a conversation and, you know, and they understood that, but like there wasn't an obvious solution, which is basically, it needs to be a publication. You should have illustrations well, that have their show. Comics should have yep. the book that comes out. 
And that you know. was that was Will Eisner's solution. So when he was teaching the class, the juniors got a book. So mm. somebody from the senior class was the editor of that book. But the juniors produce so that junior class would produce a comic. Oh, so you got I didn't know I, that because we, we talked about pages. that and had lots of conversation about how how that would work and um never managed to get it off the line off the ground i mean there was I, maybe as a result of that there was ink stains which was the student anthology which kind of mm-hmm. which which was an ongoing thing that was a student group that they basically did on their own but um but yeah some kind of like workshop type of class um because that's another thing that i've I learned living in in France is that European art schools in general have a very different approach to the curriculum and it's much less linear and hierarchically structured. And it's much more like I've taught at the, um, everywhere from there's an art school in Angoulême that's got a very good comics program, which developed into an M like a studio program, which developed into an MFA program. And they're now actually offering a PhD uh, in comics, um, which I think is a mixture of, of, you know, practice and and theory and study. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also taught, up at the uh, the animation workshop, which was up in Vigor, Viborg uh, in the north of Denmark, uh, which started as an animation school, obviously, but started a comics program about 10 years ago. Um, and those schools don't have like a regular faculty that teaches you all semester. Instead, they have a kind of coordinator for each year. And every two weeks or so, you you have a visiting teacher who comes in and basically does a two-week workshop wow. on a different theme. You know, so in, in, in both those schools, actually, I did exercise in style as a kind of workshop. So we'd have two weeks to do. Maybe I just did. I think I just did one week in Viborg. And, you know, we would come in, I would introduce my work and the idea of taking a single comic and redrawing it in different styles and point of view. And every day the kids would do a new variation. Uh, and we'd look at it, we'd critique it, we'd talk about it. Uh, in between, you know, there'd be studio time. We'd all have meals together in the cafeteria, uh, you know, it's a very small town in the, in the north of, of Denmark. Um, and, you know, it, it's a little bit more discombobulated because you don't necessarily have like, we're here, we're building on these principles. Mm-hmm. But these days, comics and art education as a whole is like people have so many disparate entry points and goals. It's very hard to teach. You know, like when I, when I started teaching at SVA, I was like very adamant, like, uh, you know, you're going to learn how to use a, you know, a nib pen and how to use a number two watercolor brush. And we're going to use water, you know, waterproof, uh, you know, India ink and, right. you know, maybe I'll teach you how to do an ink wash, but beyond that, like that's all you need for comics, you know? Um, and by the time I left, it was just like, well, uh, yeah, sure. Use a Wacom, you know, if you've got, not, if you've got a tablet, uh, you know, tell me what you're using. I want to learn how to use these uh, sure. you know, yeah, technology totally. myself. I, you know, definitely learning as much from my students uh, in terms of the technology um, by the end of my time there. So, which is just to say that that kind of more open-ended approach that's like workshop based um, can be really beneficial um, because even if it sucks, it's only two weeks and you're always going to get something out of it. And having a sort of constant rotation of new ideas and new input, new assignments, um, I think is a really great way to go about, uh, uh, learning art in particular, you know, yeah, um, for sure. thinking on your feet and, and not getting bogged down in the sense of, um, you know, one crisis I had, like I, you know, I taught for 11 years, full-time undergrad and continuing ed, like more than full-time. I kind of, and I sort of burned myself out. Um, and one problem I had was that this sense of like, why, you know, how can I, 
do like a 15 week, you know, semester where I'm teaching, um, whatever it is, principles of storytelling or how to draw in, in ink, um, how can I really reach every single student and give them what they they need? You know, some of these mm-hmm. kids don't have no interest in the kind of storytelling I'm you're know, like conventional storytelling, or they already sure. have their own kind of mindset that they're coming from. Um, and uh, it becomes kind of like uh, an exercise in futility after a while. And, and you know, a, a waste of time <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, whereas if you're like switching it up more often, you know, you find more ways for, for, especially like, you know, reluctant kids, kids who are either really shy or are, or sometimes kids who are hot shots and think they know it all and they need to have someone sure. come in and show, like blow them away. You know, uh, again, it, it comes, it comes from all directions. So, uh, yeah, not, not that I think, uh, you know, American art schools are going to change that model anytime soon. Cause that would, that would call for a complete overhaul of the way art schools are run. But yeah, well, it's, so it's, what's interesting. I mean, to me, it sounds like a master, like a sort of a series of master classes. You're getting yeah. a master class, sort exactly. of, you know, just dialed up. Here you go. You're going to go, you're going to get a lot of stuff coming across the thing. But I was thinking about like what you were doing in the, the discussion of style and thinking about how style is such a personalized element in 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 the arts i mean we really let's aside from session players and music style is like this is my thing this is the thing that i've created and i'm gonna shut everything else out in the world in that sense so how did like how did you overcome that i would assume level of reluctance to try to break one's style for your course Mm. um yeah it's a good question Uh, i think and i you know the you see it most clearly because they're more conventionalized style and kids who are really into mainstream superhero style or like a very hardcore manga style whether it's shoju or, or or whatever um and uh the thing is with the when i teach Exercise and Style, uh, which is, you know, based on a a French book that I made a comic book version of, uh, the idea of taking a single short story and retelling it numerous times. Style Mm -hmm. can mean a lot of different things. So sometimes, yes, I'm going to say, you're into manga. I want you to draw this next. Sometimes I will actually confront them directly and say, like, I know you're drawing manga style all the time. Next comic, I want you to draw it, like, in the style of Robert Crumb. You know, I'll give them a bunch Mm -hmm. of Robert Crumb comics or something, uh, or Julie Doucet, and say, like, here, draw this in a Julie Doucet style. Um, but then there's also stuff where it's like, all right, we're going to draw it in a different genre or for a different point of view. So style mm-hmm. is more than just the the drawing, which I think is part of the the idea of style is um, is really the totality of your the tools you have as a as a storyteller. You know, so um, there are people who have um, just one drawing style, but they have enormous variety of styles in the way they approach storytelling. Um, I think about like Louis Trondheim or Jason, the Norwegian cartoonist who's done a bunch of books with banner graphics. Who've, they both have a very simple, recognizable drawing style that hasn't really changed much since they sort of settled on it in the you know early 2000s or even the 90s. But they find ways to tell really different kinds of stories with them from, you know, mysteries to fantasy epics to humorous stuff to autobio. Um, and that becomes the way that they express different varieties of style, you know, within a recognizable 
you know, plastic style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We spend a lot of time when we're young, especially a lot of cartoonists, copying cartoons that we like. Sure. So that sense of style, borrowed style or infused style is, I guess, kind of baked in. Yeah. I mean, I didn't go to art school. I studied comp lit. And, um, and I, when I started getting into drawing, it was really, that's the, a lot of my, my self-education was just like doing line for line copies uh, mm-hmm. of George Harriman, of, you know, the Hernandez brothers, of Julie Doucet drawings, of uh, Dan Klaus, uh, and then, you know, Hergé and Mobius and all this kind of stuff, trying to learn how they did it. And then, you know, and then, uh, you know, in addition to the whole exercise in style thing, one aspect of that is copying styles. And that's something I enjoy a lot when I would teach a an ink drawing class. Um, I would always do what I call a forgery assignment where I would cool. assign people not just to draw something that looks a little bit like, you know, uh, a Carl Barks drawing, but to like do some research, find out what kind of pen did he use, what size did he draw at, which is really mm-hmm. important, I think, in terms of really getting into the the hand of someone, and uh, to make a, a drawing that's going to be so uh, faithful, technically and stylistically, to the uh, whatever artist you're copying, that you could go on eBay and sell it as a forgery. <laughs> Well, I don't think anyone there's... ever tried to actually did that. I encourage I make clear that was just an academic, you know, conceit exercise. Yes. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's when you really get into that level of of detail, you know, it's not going to change you overnight. But it's, it it gives you some insight into, uh, it, at the very least, it humanizes it like art that looks like totally impossible to you, like an Edward Gorey drawing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you you know look into it, if you can also if you can get a chance to actually go to a, a gallery and look at an original drawing, you know that's always really amazing too. And you can look at it and say, Oh, I see where he'd make corrections here. And, you know, you, you get a sense of the human hand doing even, you know, I don't know, like a Jeff Darrow drawing or something like that stuff. It's like totally insane looking. Um, it still has a human, uh, scale to it that you can learn about, you know, whether that becomes part of your own style or not, uh, you know, it isn't even really that important. It's part of your education as an artist, you know, and learning how to look and how to get a sense of, of, of scale. And communicate. And listen, you're also trying to become a professional in this in this world. And part of the job of professionals are to be able to communicate different things. And so, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'd been, I've been asked many times, can you make it look like this? Right. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. That's, yeah. And that plays into like when I, you know, in terms of like kids who have a really set drawing style, um, you know, I'm not going to try and break them of, of their style because that's what they love to do. Right. And frankly, it, it is going to be a marketing asset for them if that's what, you know, if if they are trying to do, you know, a mera manga or superhero stuff, or, you know, they want to draw like the next Chris Ware or something. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people who just have, they've like, this is what I, this is how I, I've got my visual thing worked out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, that's fine, but you can still find ways to tweak that visually to make it more your own, to, to, to see how you can expand and contract it, you know, in, in different ways. Um, but, uh, I definitely, you know, as you know, like my own work, exercise and style, ex libris, you know, I, I sink a huge amount of time into just, you know, I draw three pages in one style and then it's like, all right, I got to come up with a whole new style, whether it's, you know, sometimes I'm a lot of times in, in both those books, I'm imitating or doing homage or a bit of a parody of existing styles, but it still means a couple of days of, you know, getting out books to look at and drawing in my sketchbook and working stuff out. Um, there's definitely, 
just a, a practical as well as a marketing value, you know, to having a clear, simple style that you can do quickly, you can produce on demand without too much preparation and just get drawing. You know, I, I really mm-hmm. admire that. And I, I, uh, I'm always hoping that I'm going to just back into a style like that and, and we'll have done, we'll suddenly have like three books over my shoulder and be like, Oh, I guess I've come up with my working style finally. Um, <laughs> sure. But in my case, the larger aspects of like what you can do with shifts in style and drawing style and, 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 uh, you know, registers of storytelling, uh, I find so fun to play around with that I keep on going down these rabbit holes. And that, that might just be part of my artistic project that I'm, you know, doomed to, you know, continue. It might, it might be your style, you know, yeah, your style yeah, might be doing my that. style is unfortunately this very labor intensive, um, style of, you know, constantly morphing into other stuff. But well, for, so for Ex Libris, how did you, how did you plot out the entirety of this? Because you, because you know, for people who haven't read it, I mean, this is a story that changes the visual and narrative storytelling process, yet maintaining a through line throughout mm-hmm. each, through the entirety of the piece. So, yeah. it's a, I mean, there, there's sort of kind of like multiple things happening at once in sections of this book, which is great. But like, did you sit down and go, okay, here's my idea for the story. Now, how, like, did you like really have to plot out like, okay, I really wanted to have this kind of vibe, this kind of vibe, this kind of vibe leading to something at the end? Or are you just um, riffing? Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, basically there was like a push and pull between, uh, this notion, I just, I like little short stories and fragments that are, you know, self-referential in one way or another. Um, and I've just, I'd already done a lot of them or had ideas for a lot of stories like that. Um, so I already had a lot of this kind of stuff. And at some point, um, I came up with this idea for a larger story about a character who would be reading through these books and the book would be, you know, entering in a sort of narrative dialogue and in some sense, drawing them into their action and sending them on to the next, you know, part of the story. So, um, so there were these two, there was a larger structure of like, I had an idea of a character who's in a room. At some point I decided to be, you know, characters sort of locked in a room with a bookshelf full of comics and they're reading these comics. Uh, and I just had a general idea that they need to like, learn something from these comics, like to, to figure out some way to get out of the room by the end of the book. Mm-hmm. That, that gave me sort of a narrative, almost like a thriller, you know, psychological thriller, like arc, um, yeah. which, um, which would be hopefully be, you know, satisfying for a reader who's just, you know, wants to read a tale. Um, there, there's a push and pull in my, in my work and the kind of work I like between, uh, you know, telling a story and fulfilling the traditional kind of three act Western plot structure stuff um, and stuff that's more experimental, that's non linear, that isn't really concerned with narrative as much as uh, either, you know, experimenting with form or being more essayistic or impressionistic or like, you know, ambient storytelling or something like that. So um, in some ways, this book is a way to have it both way, attempt to have it both ways where I, I built a, this structure that's narrative. And then I have all these ideas for more playful experimental ideas about comics. Um, And then it kind of became a matter of sort of looking at, you know, spreading them all out and figuring out how they, how they built on each other, you know, how they built, how one story might plant an idea that could be developed in the later story. Um, 
I'm trying to think if there's a, a simple illustration I can get without too many spoilers from the book. But, um, uh, but so, you know, in the, within the various fragments that are in Ex Libris, and there's some, you know, I guess there's maybe four or five full, like, start-to-finish stories. And then a lot of things where you're reading, like, either, like, one page or even a few panels out of a larger book. But they make sense because you're reading them within the context of, you know, all this other, this sort of collage not narrative that I've put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and several of those had existed in... You know, independently, I'd already drew, drawn them. And when I started thinking about this structure, I was like, oh, I can reuse these. You know, one sort of uh, goal of this book was to create, um, to sneak a short story collection onto the market because publishers hate doing short story collections. You know, I love sure. short stories. Everyone loves short yeah. stories. I don't know why it's such a big deal. But you talk to any publisher, any agent, any editor, as soon as you mention a short story collection, they just turn pale and they're like, no, you know, do, do a novel, do a graphic novel, do whatever, do a memoir. So, right. um, so this was a way to like, you know, graft uh, a short story collection into a larger narrative in some sense. Um, and, uh, ironically, you know, because the book came out and it, and it did well, uh, uncivilized books, my, my next book with them will be actually finally a short story collection of a lot of other short stories I've done over the last uh, 20 years or so. So that'll hopefully be coming out, uh, in 2024. Oh, cool. But, um, no, this is, I mean, this is, it, it is the thing that you think about, you know, when you think short story collection or anth- or developing an anthology, like how do you make this thing an interesting, interesting enough that someone's going to say, hey, I'm going to take a risk on this, you know? Yeah. So the, the model for the anthology is like, well, can we get somebody famous to do one piece in here so we can get, make sure that somebody's going to buy it? So you see right. a lot of Neil Gaiman short stories and collections because mm-hmm. they know for they can sure, move yeah. them the material yeah well it's and, even harder when it's a one person omnibus there's a collection of your well, own work you know right and uh and there's a there's a not great tradition in comics publishing and in indie comics publishing i find especially of like putting together these like these sort of grab bag collections of, like especially you know an author who's like got a little bit of renown you put together a book that's like every little short thing they've done including like a few illustration gigs you throw in a couple of pages of sketchbook stuff yeah. some doodle stuff here and there you know um, an essay or two written by somebody else about them yeah <laughs> so uh so i'm yeah i'm trying my collection um to i mean this is not finalized and we haven't even signed a contract so i shouldn't talk about this too much but the collection i've been working on i've been trying to sell it for a few years which is be a collection of what they they're very different stories in content but they all share uh my interest in formal constraints uh so like i send you a copy of bridge this mm-hmm. uh short yeah. story that i did uh and bridge will probably be the the sort of anchor story of that collection but i have several you know, and that story was done as a 24 hour comic. Initially, I redrew it mm-hmm. to make it look better. But, you know, I had that time constraint of having to come up with a whole story of 24 pages in 24 hours. Uh, but more importantly, for me was the the added constraint that every page um, has to 10 years have to pass from one page to the next. So the story takes mm-hmm. place in two over a course of 240 years in a very short you know, 24 pages. Uh, and the storytelling challenge for me then became, how do I tell a story? I, you know, am I going to tell a story about a vampire or like, how do I bridge that amount of time? Do I do a family saga? Sure. You know, and I ended up coming up with this sort of three part, uh, structure, um, that I was really pleased with. And, yeah, uh, no, that, it's a great, it, it's a great, it's a great, um, it's a great way to handle that sort of constraint. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, constraints are a real keyword for me. In fact, you can see on this poster behind me that says freedom and constraint, which is a, there you go. the name of a, of an exhibit that I curated, uh, when we were living in France, um, uh, on this, about this group called Ubapo, which I'm associated with, which is the workshop for potential comics. And it's a group of cartoonists that work with constraints and rules as a way to challenge ourselves to make uh, new comics. So I've done a lot of work in this, in this vein. It comes out of exercise and style. So that comic was inspired by uh, a book by a French author named Raymond Cano, uh, who wrote the, a book called Exercise and Style in 1947, I think it came out. And and it's the same basic principle. It's a short text that he tells 99 times in different styles, different points of view. Um, and in 1960, he founded a group called Ulipo, the Workshop for Potential Literature, uh, which looked for you know game-like structures like that to, uh, to to generate new types of literature. Like he created a, a book called um, 100 Million Million Sonnets. And he, it's actually just 10 sonnets. But he figured out that, you know, those um, chimera animal books where you have like the head mm-hmm. and the midsection yeah, yeah. and you can mix the lion and the elephant and so on. He applied that principle to the sonnet. So that gives you 14 flaps, right? Because mm-hmm. there's 14 lines in a sonnet. And so you write 10 sonnets, that gets you 10 to the 14 power, which is, which is a one with 14 zeros after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the number of poems it generates, um, which is more poems than you can read in like something like 50 lifetimes. It's like, it's impossible right. to read. <laughs> so there was that conceptual idea of creating a book of poetry that's literally unreadable, you know, in, in multiple lifetimes. Uh, and also, how do you write, how do you compose 10 you know, 10 sonnets on separate strips in such a way that no matter how you recombine them, they'll still rhyme because it, mm-hmm. it follows, you know, follows the sonnet structure. Uh, it'll, because it's in French, it has to be a correspondence in the masculine and, you know, the, the, the gender of the nouns, if they're masculine or feminine uh, and so on. And that it more or less works as a, as a poem. Which, um, you know, in my lifetime of knowing this book, I'll pick it up, you know, every couple of years and, and read a few sonnets. And they always make sense. They always work. They're often very witty and, and funny. Um, and so that was, again, that kind of creative challenge that really inspired him that had a, this sort of conceptual angle, but also this creative challenge. Like, can I really create, you know, this, this modular poem, you know, that can be read any possible way? Yeah. Um, so that kind of idea is a real spark to all of my creativity and you see less of it directly in Ex Libris, but it's definitely behind that whole work as well. This sort of setting myself a task and trying to, to rise to the, you know, to the occasion. Yeah. I think, I mean, it is something that you, you know, I mean, we have this sort of internal desire to kind of create from, you know, whole cloth you know, early on in our life where we yeah. go, Hey, I, I have this agency, you know, this pen is in my hand or this instrument instrument is in my hands and yeah. I'm going to make something that no one's ever seen before. And a lot of times we spend a lot of, a lot of that staring at blankness because there's nothing to kind of push against. There's nothing Absolutely. to kind of feel against. And then when, you know, if you're in the, if you're using your skill sets in the, the commercial aspect all you have is constraints. You, know, right. you have time, you have budget, you have clients, and they have the, their needs and wishes. And so you have to kind of contend with all this stuff. But yet, what makes something unique out in the world is that people can connect to this thing. 
but it's those constraints that the creators are put under. They go, okay, how do we solve this? How do we make this thing something that we can all go home and sleep well, yeah. <laughs> knowing we did this this work? Yeah. And it's work. It's not just yeah. like ah, I made something and pat me on the back off I go. Like this is our this is our livelihood. It's our it's the thing that drives us. So exactly, yeah. These are important. So yeah, and they exist. In, yeah, they exist in all levels of creativity as well, not just commercial art, but just you know, if you want to make a comic book you have all these pre-existing constraints in terms of like the page format. If you're, you know, if you're working in a commercial, you know, uh, mode, you've got deadlines and, you know, you've got to be able to work with, and there, you know, and traditionally you had like limits in what kind of colors you could use. I mean, the whole reason right. we have the sort of classic American drawing style we have is because, you know, Milt Kniff and all these guys were drawing for, uh, for, for newsprint and they had to draw, you know, nice thick lines that would like reproduce in really crappy circumstances, you know, um, <laughs> otherwise they might've been drawing really delicate, you know, spindly lines and pencil, you know, stuff as you can now, because it's much easier to do stuff online, uh, and even to, to print at higher quality than it was, uh, yeah. you know, in the, in the forties and fifties say. So, uh, so whether you want to believe that art is about, you know, total freedom and you have, you just have to be have inspiration. The fact is, there's always all these constraints uh, that are already, you know, uh, constraining you. And becoming aware of them, I think, is a kind of freedom in itself. Just being aware that, like, yes, I have a deadline. Yes, there's a format I have to follow. Uh, yes, even you know, I want to tell a story. Therefore, I have to you know, pay some homage to Robert McKee or whatever, you know, whatever it's going to be. Um, <laughs> those are those are there whether you like it or not. And then what I like to do is then add an extra kind of absurdist constraint on top of that, mm -hmm. which perversely by making it even more difficult and boxed in, it really, you know, it's that gauntlet. It, like you said, it, as an artist, it pushes you to make that very personal um, response, the solution that you're going to come up with, which you don't know what it's going to be until you do it. You know, this the, with Bridge, I started that evening without any idea that I was going to write uh, the story that I wrote, which is this kind of <laughs> wow, almost like a Twilight Zone kind of weird. You know, it it it's a story that I, it's a story I like to read. I like I like to read it almost yeah. like someone else wrote it because it just sort of came out of me, not out of inspiration. I do think there's, um, I think you know, one when people hear me talk about constraints and they hear about this group Ulipo, they think, well, it sounds like you know, like computer art or something like that, and it's not not really because it's it's really about setting aside all the other um misconceptions about you know inspiration and freedom and thinking that something's going to come whole cloth into your mind it's actually really about wrestling with the materials at hand um that will really you know squeeze some new insight out of you that that comes right that does come out of in in the end is a kind of inspiration i think it's a kind of like um using your own intuition like i i don't believe in inspiration but i believe much a lot in uh in in a kind of artist's intuition you know mm -hmm. when i have some weird constraint in front of me how am i going to tell this story where 10 years pass and every page um there there's uh sure i can see there's a numerical thing going on there um, I can't just rely on, on the muse and inspiration because I got to follow this rule. So what I have to do instead is like wrestle with this, this, 
time constraint that I have. And also, you know, both in terms of like, I have to do 10 years every page. I also have to finish this thing in 24 hours. Sure. Right. And I really have to trust my, my intuition and my experience and my taste uh, as an artist and a storyteller to just start doodling. And, you know, that's what I did. I made charts. I drew out little graphs. All right. 10 years. How does this work out? You know, until I started to get these ideas and then these little things pop and they, Oh, this, this idea fits with that idea. And they start to all come together. And then, uh, there's this amazing moment of like solving a difficult chess problem or something where it's, you know, it, it all comes into focus. Uh, not always, you know, it's all, it's experimental. So it can also fall flat, you know, um, the year after I drew, I originally drew, or I will say, you know, created bridge in 2013 in Angoulême where they used to do, a um, a 24-hour comics event the night before the comics festival starts, which they stopped doing during the pandemic. But um, the year after this, I drew Bridge. I went to another one of these events, and um, I drew something. I mean, I I I'd sketched for 24 hours. I actually I, I think about 18 hours, and I gave up. And I still have an unfinished thing lying around and I still have this vague idea of like maybe I can salvage this into something but you know frankly it failed as an experiment you know yeah uh, you just don't know going into it so that's I think that's an important aspect of art too is like you know being willing to try something and just totally plunk it you know yeah I, I mean uh, my you know wife is a is an artist and I I watch her wrestle with that all the time because She's almost kind of unwilling to accept defeat on anything. So she will just... What's her, what's her medium? Does she have a main medium? What's her medium of choice? Well, she was a sculptor for the predominant time of the, you know, that we've been together. So over 20 years. But yeah. um, when she went off to Ireland she didn't want to bring sculpture to or from so she said i'm you know what i'm gonna do watercolors so she just dragged paper and and paint and so she's been doing watercolors but she's not doing watercolors like humans do watercolors she's like okay cool now i'm gonna paint this stuff and then i'm gonna cut it apart and then i'm gonna sew it all back together like Mm -hmm, okay you know like but like she'll do things and and I'll look at it. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's completely successful, you know, because she's not happy with it. I'm not saying this as sort of, sort of, sort of yeah, like, I don't yeah. know. And then she, she'll she just go like, yeah, but I'll figure it out. Like she just, she, she, and it's not even, she says she'll figure it out. She just goes like, and she just bludgeons on forward through this yeah. thing. And no, yeah. When I say that um, experiments can be failures, that doesn't mean that they necessarily need to be walked away from. Cause yeah, you can, like I said, this, even this one that I did, I still have it in a folder. And I still carry it around with me thinking like at some point I'm going to pull this out and I think I'll come up with an idea to make it cohere into something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think almost any creative project uh, is salvageable. And, and I've observed it a lot uh, in my own work especially on individual drawings because um uh, you know i'm not a natural draftsman the way some people are i really need to like do a lot of tracing and work up my drawings until i'm happy with them and there are definitely various times where i'm just like i can't do this drawing it's always going to look terrible uh and sometimes i'll put it away for a few weeks and move on other stuff Mm -hmm. um and i come back to it and i work on it some more and eventually sometimes i amaze myself i'm like wow i nailed it more often it's like i get to the next stage i'm like all right maybe it's it's not exactly what i was looking for but like I'll, it I'll live with what, this. yeah it achieves what i was what i set out for uh in in the uh you know in the context of the of the work um so i think that's i think that's a really key thing about being an artist actually is 
knowing that a piece of art is never finished, mm -hmm. but also knowing you have to stop at some point, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been writing for the last, I don't know, however many, five, six years and novel writing. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I've come to the conclusion, like a, a book isn't done until your publisher takes it away from you. Like Absolutely. there is no, because unless someone takes it away from you, you're just going to keep going, Oh, wait, I know how to solve that scene better. Yeah. I know how to do this better or whatever the thing is, um, which I know people that this type of behavior plagues their creative career. They don't yeah, sure. ever move. They don't move forward. They just live in this cyclical thing. Like, well, I could, I could fix that. I can right. fix that. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> while Whitman pretty famously is considered to have like largely ruined many editions of Leaves of Grass because mm. in his case, he was actually published. And then he would go back in to the manuscript, like, no, I'm going to redo this, going to reshuffle this stuff, I have some new material. And I don't know, during his lifetime, there's like, you know, 10 different editions of Leaves of Grass. And at this point, most <laughs> scholars and readers agree, like, the second one was the best. After right. that, he started making it worse. You know, it's like, yeah. just let it go and move on to something else, you know? Well, it's like, I mean, you know, you and I being this, the same age, like, there's that thing of like, you know, we were of that Star Wars generation and like, you know, and then like arguably the most successful sort of cinematic venture. And this guy goes, I, I can still make it probably better. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you, you, you didn't, but yeah. cool. You know, it's just one of these kind of things like there is like, we should take our hands off the thing. Like, you know, okay, time hands up, you know, yeah. like move along, make something new. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I just want to go back to Ex Libris just a little little longer. The, sure. Because you have such a variety of work in there, I'm assuming you had a lot of variety of tools and materials you used to achieve the book. Mm -hmm. um, a fair amount, although to be honest, the vast majority of the book was drawn in India Ink on Bristol board with uh, you know one of two or three favorite you know nibs that I use, just like your basic mm -hmm. on 102. Um, I haven't gotten stuff out in a while here. Let's see what I got. I got one of these mechanical pencils because I saw um, yeah, Spreechen, sure. the Belgian cartoonist doing a, you know, he does these amazing architectural drawings. Let me get that in focus here. And yeah. I just loved the fact that he could just draw for a while. And then it, you got this little, uh, you can lower the, um, the uh, lead and you sharpen it in this funny little doohickey. I just, yeah. it's like a, it's a really pleasing ritual. I'm not sure it's faster or better than just using I, like a regular I I, pencil, but I just like I that. I think I probably drew, I drew probably 90% of my comic books with a pencil like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to have rituals that make it like more, it's like a green tea ceremony. You know, you want to find mm -hmm. ways to make it enjoyable. So yeah, your basic Hunt 102 with just like yep. a little like kids rubber, you know, pencil yep. holder to... For my weird fingers, fingers. Yeah. and um, and with and I use a brush. This is a really ratty old uh, Raphael uh, number four. At some point, at some point, Jessica and I decided we need to have like really thick. I can't remember who told us that, but someone was like, "Yeah, use like a number four watercolor brush because you can get really fine lines yeah. if it's like a you know Klinsky sable, and you can also get that you know I like a big chunky fat a brush line too." And I was amazed to learn years later that um, Paul Pope 
uses like a triple zero. He's a tiny little brush, oh but he has these amazing black fields of black yeah, yeah. ink in his comics. But he draws everything with this tiny little little brush. It's hilarious. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it really is a lot of uh, pen, and um, you know the co- the color. Uh, the sort of main color, there's a lot of blue, there's sort of like a blue tone in there. There's a mixture of like ink wash, which I then scan and, and tint it in Photoshop and some flat color as well. Um, you know, I'm trying to think if I really used other tools very much. There, there's, a, you know, with the color effects, there's a fair amount of um, stuff done in, in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Um that horror comic section was really well colored. Right. Thanks. Yeah, that's all. I've done iterations of that over the years, dating back to Bizarro Comics number two, which remember that DC mm-hmm. Comics did these things. And, and um, uh, my wife did a comic with Dylan Horrocks in there about Supergirl. And that got me into and they had me color it. And then they liked what I did with it and invited me to do. And I, a bunch of my friends were in there, too. Dean Haspiel, Nick Bertozzi, Tom Hart. Uh, Megan Kelso and Ellen Forney all had comics in there. So I ended up coloring for all of them. And one of them actually, Evan Dorkin and, and Dean Haspiel had like a parody of, Shaz- of Shazam. Um, okay. And we wanted to look at, make it look like an old, you know, old uh, four color newsprint book. So um, I did some research and figured out how to kind of reproduce that, the big dot coloring. Because the problem with coloring yeah. technology, it's it's almost too good. You can't get that. You can't organically yeah. get that like crappy color anymore. Um, you have to recreate it uh, artificially. So with... Um, with Xleap, but so I've done it a few times over the year. It's like it's a little gimmicky. You don't want to overdo it. I did it in exercise and style as well, but I'm pretty pleased with um, how it worked out on here because I refined the technique a little bit so that, like, I noticed when you look at those old comic books, not only are, are there the dots and they're you know off register, mm-hmm. but like on the plate, let's see, very like the red here. Yeah. Very, very often the ink kind of pools up at the bottom of the field. <laughs> totally. So I, I just did that, you know, like the blue, especially. So I'll do stuff like that where I would just go in with a smudge tool and create that sort of, so it's all done digitally, but you know, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. it turned out pretty well. Right, because you can't make that happen. So you have to, no, you no, have to fake yeah. it. Like I said, really, I mean, I, I don't know the kind of printing press and like color separation you would need to actually print that way. It, weirdly, it's probably very hard to find now. I, uh, they're probably they were some, all, most likely they're all smashed up and, and recycled for material. I mean, yeah. it'd be it, cool it, if like newsprint comic publishing, you know, circa 1950 became like a boutique thing, like risographs or something, you know, some people set up sure. some old printing presses like that and we're just running off, you know, badly off register, you know, cheap newsprint uh, pamphlet comics again. That'd be cool. My, my inner 12 year old would be there buying those. Mm-hmm. That is a, uh, you know, I, what do we, I mean, it's like, what did I, I can't remember what I, I wrote the other day, but it's just, there's this sort of this dull keening pain of, you know, of reality as you see your life turned into nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, okay. Like this is now people, everybody else out there goes, oh, this is so nostalgic. You're like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, just, uh, that becomes it, more and more acute year by year. Yeah, totally. It's it's just it's just the way it happens. Um, what is your? I mean, what's your what's your writing process like when you sit down? Like, I mean, how do you how do you collect? How do you develop? How do you put everything together? 
Yeah. Well, I don't write. Uh, I don't write a script. I think is the main difference I have from a lot of uh, cartoonists and, and certainly writers for comics. Uh, instead, I, um, you know, the, the development stage, which is very long. I'm a very slow kind of plotting worker in terms of developing ideas. I'll have notes, which I'll keep either in a sketchbook or increasingly like on my computer. Um, I use Evernote, um, mm-hmm. which I found to be really good for just like storing, you know, I'll just make a notebook with all notes related to a particular story. And I can also save, um, you know, articles that are related to it or clip art in there, or even, you know, drop in voice memos or whatever. Um and as a, you know, and again, as I often start from a constraint, I usually will start with some kind of concept like that. Like another book um, that I did a few years ago was called Drawn Onward. It was published mm-hmm. by Retrofit. It will also be reprinted in my short story collection. Um, and it has a, a very difficult constraint, it took me years to figure out, which is that it's basically a palindromic story. So the first, the layout of the first page is the same as the layout of the last page. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of twisted love story. And the two, there's two characters who meet and they kiss right in the middle of the book. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, their paths are sort of heading towards this kiss. And then they start to diverge in this, you know, visually symmetrical way, but that needs to also tell a story through there. Mm-hmm. So that involved just lots of like doodles and sketches and making little dummies of the book and just trying to, I guess there's a lot of, you know, when, when there's some kind of formal um, reading path aspect to it. I'll have, you know, lots of little printouts and thumbnails. Uh, instead of scripting, uh, I learned this thing from Jessica, who learned it from Alison Bechtel, which is that Alison, when she was working on Fun Home, developed this um, kind of like ad hoc system of, she was using Illustrator, I think, or maybe maybe in, yeah, I think she was doing Adobe Illustrator. Okay. Um, and what we showed her um, InDesign was actually better adapted for this. But basically, you create a whole mock-up of the book in a design program like InDesign. And what's great is that you can then have all your pages in there. You can divide your panels, you know, a grid if you're, you can preset it. I tend to work mm-hmm. in a grid. So Ex Libris is, you know, like a six-panel grid. I usually do six or nine panels as a starting point, at least. You can just lay that all in there, and you can start typing dialogue in there and text descriptions. So it's kind of, it's kind of like a visual script. Yeah. And what's great is that, um, what's important for me is that the reason I don't like uh, to write like a screenplay type of script is that the, one of the most important storytelling tools of comics is the page, the spread and the page turn and sure. where things appear on the page in relation to each other and to the rest of the book. So, um, so, you know, a story where it's like literally a mirror, there's, you can't write a you know screenplay for that. You have to be able to look at it. So when I'm, when you're writing visually um, in a layout or in a little booklet, you know, because sometimes I'll just have like tiny little thumbnail. You can do like t- templates that I find. Like Deviant Art is 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 still out there. It's like I feel like that was like in the early 2000s. All my students were on there, and I don't know if they are anymore. But what I have found is useful for us. A lot of artists share templates for stuff, and like you know right. brushes for Photoshop and things like that. So you can find little templates that are like little mini thumbnails for like a 24 page book or something like that. Um, so, so sometimes that 
that small, just like doing tiny little doodles to get the pacing of the story. So it's always a back and forth. And the, and the writing, the actual like narration and dialogue comes comparatively late in the game. Once I have a sense of like how long it's going to be. And once I'm sure I can place that stuff on a page, because um, a conversation, depending on the the visual storytelling could happen on one page, but you might start laying it out and say like, oh, I really got to get this taken care of in like two panels so I can have room mm -hmm. for this visual stuff that needs to happen. Or you might realize, oh, wait, you know what? This could actually be like a three page thing because then it would lead up to a page turn, which leads to, you know, some revelation or whatever. So um, it's a little bit of a chore to set up. But at this point, I have like a template set up and I just get my Instagram, my uh, InDesign set up. And basically that InDesign document slowly becomes the final book because as I draw doodles or even like have reference photos, I can just drop them into the InDesign um, yep. and I get a sense of how it's developing. I'll print that out and I'll trace it and do, you know, final drawing, scan it back in and slowly the book, you know, evolves that way. Um, so that pretty much that same what started as a, 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 a kind of thumbnail writing document becomes the final document that I send to the, to the publisher in the end. Yeah. Um, so that. it's a very dynamic way and you can move pages around and, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a really very uh, modular and very editable, um, but very visually focused form of writing. I think. No, I, I, recommend think, that's I think it's beautiful. I, I mean, I love InDesign, but I love the way you're using it. That's a really, uh, it's, it's, it's really flexible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's good. Um, because it keeps you from the issue of like writing out of a script and then try, having to break it down and, you know, you end up, I don't know, possibly cramming stuff in where, cause you're running out of room on the page and I don't know, it just, uh, it, it bypasses that, that aspect of the writing. It's, I mean, it is, it's amazing how valuable our, our tools are not the tools specifically, but how we module, you know, modify the tools that we use, like making the tool work for us becomes part of that creative process becomes part of that constraint. Sure. We have to, we have to kind of work around, you know, like, I mean, if you, if you're like, Hey, I can't get to the, I, I'm, I'm away and there's no way I'm going to be able to replace this brush, but it's got that really weird thing where it starts making that double split line. Mm -hmm. How do I make that work for me? Like I got to figure out how to make that work because that's just the thing. And inevitably that could become the look that you like. But, yeah. you know, you have to kind of work with these kind of, I don't know, these kinks to make the kinks kind of be cool. For sure. I mean, part of finding your, your voice beyond just like whatever your style and kind of the, the genre you like is like, you know, we all have a sort of physiological aspect of the way we draw a little wobble to our line mm -hmm. or a tendency to like draw heads leaning a certain way or, uh, you know, a, a really thick line. Um, and that's, you know, uh, maybe it's something that we, at first we think like, I got to get rid of that, but then eventually you have to realize that's like part of your, your style. Right. Uh, and it's, it's what makes your stuff your own unique, um, expression. Well, it's funny. I was looking at the, I was looking at some lettering in your books and I was thinking, is he left-handed? Cause I'm thinking it was hand done lettering, you know? And I'm like, cause the, the, the slant of the uprights, so I was like, I'm like that looks like a left-handed writing style but i think well, they're all it's font based on my left-handed right. writing style so yeah oh, okay so there you go so i mean like yeah, I'm I'm left, you, are, you are correct and okay. um and there's a fair amount of hand lettering in the book and in, in the sort of shorter stories but the main font that you see throughout the book is uh is a font based on my lettering 
um, Very cool. which I've, which I've, I'm pretty, I'm really pleased with at this point. And actually it does look pretty convincing, um, as a organic lettering, it's got several alternates for shape. Mm -hmm. So you don't get too much repetition. Um, it's a little bit of a Frankenstein monster, but I've, you know, I've developed it over the years, um, and sent it back to various people to, you know, whenever I get a new publisher, I'm like, especially foreign publishers, you know, I have like, Oh, can you add this different accent shape? And right. they usually do that stuff for me. So, uh, for anybody who hasn't read the book, go out, you know, get Ex Libris. There's a really great sequence in there on like in real time on lettering. It's very, very cool. Like that's, yeah. that, that whole, that whole section of creating their own comic book and the lettering. It's, it was really, really fun to read. So uh, thanks. Yeah. I, I dug that. So what's the, what's the timeline? What are, like what's happening with, with like what are, what are people going to be able to take a look at the new stuff or any of the uh well new stuff not very, not anytime soon but yeah. um ex libris is actually almost sold out of its first first print run wow uh, congratulations it's, it's supposedly in china being reprinted right now um so uh it it's not gone yet you can still find it um but there will be a new printing showing up by the spring i, I think um the uh french edition is officially launching in february but i'll be uh going to angoulême next week to do a sort of pre-launch signing at the at the uh, association booth um a french publisher They've also done uh, an edition of Bridge, um, and uh, and they years ago they did my exercise and style book. So I'll have like a full you know spread of stuff to to sell. That's great. And sign uh, in Angula. Um, in terms of yeah, my short story collection uh, is slated for uh, spring twenty four you know, handshake agreement. Like I said, right. we haven't signed anything. Um, I'm, I'm still holding out for the off chance that, um, cause I basically have it ready to go. I would need like, you know, a week or two of like hard work of just, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and all that. But, um, it, it could be made ready to go. So I'm hoping someone gets, you know, behind schedule and has to drop out of the fall slate. That actually <laughs> happened to me with Ex Libris. I was, Ex Libris would have come out later, but, um, cause Tom, uh, Kaczynski, you know, bought it in like February and I figured, well, it's going to be spring, the, you know, spring, it would have come out like, you know, I guess spring 21, but as it happened, he had an author who was supposed to deliver in the fall of 20 and who couldn't, you know, make the deadline family stuff had come up. So he was able to slot me in earlier and I was able to, the book came out in, in uh, October of 2020. That's amazing. Um, so, so, uh, it's getting a bit late for that to happen for me with my short story collection, but, uh, but it's all right. I, you know, in the meantime, uh, I've been pretty busy just, you know, ex libris with, you know, um, doing talks like this, which has been a lot of fun. Um, uh, I've also been doing a little bit more teaching than, than usual in the last year. I mean, I've taken kind of a long break since my SVA years. And um, when we were in France, I did a lot of teaching at different schools around, uh, around France and, uh, of course, up in Denmark at the animation workshop. But um, in April, I'm really excited. I'm going to get to go to the Banff Center for Arts and Creativity, uh, where I'm running a uh, two-week comics residency. It's going to be me and my friend Bishak Song, who's a really great cartoonist. Uh, and she and I are going to be the, the faculty 
But again, it's, it's kind of on this European model that we were talking about before, where it's really a open workshop people are going to bring. We're going to have 14 residents uh, from Canada and from all over the world. Um, and they will come and work on comics projects. We're not really teaching. We're going to be on hand to talk about our work and be there to answer questions and, you know, check in on, on people periodically. And we'll be working on our own comics, I hope. And, you know, I, I do have, so I do have a, a new, two new book ideas that I'm kind of sort of banging my head against until and see which one cracks the shell first before right. I can, you know, commit to it more long-term and start talking about it. But I do have a few uh, projects I want to do next in comics. Um, the Banff, I don't know how soon you're going live on this, but the, uh, the deadline for the Banff residency is uh, January 25th. Um, okay. So uh, if, if we're live before then, I can give you the, the link to, to check that out. Um, I'll put it in the description. <laughs> yeah, I'm also going to be teaching a class on constraints, like we were talking about earlier. If that kind of stuff interests you, I'm going to do a four a four session workshop. It's going to be a Saturdays. Uh, it's going to be online through the Sequential Artist Workshop, um, which is Tom Hart's um, comic school that he started mm-hmm. after he left as teaching SVA in, in around 2010, uh, and is now mostly an online school. So that'll be like a, that's going to be in March, I want to say. Um, the Banff residency by the way, is actually is the last two weeks of April is when the actual residency okay. is. Um, and uh, so those are two standalone things. And then the other thing I started doing when we were talking about this when we were setting up earlier uh, is that um, I've been doing one-on-one comics coaching like for people who are, mostly people who are not necessarily like a beginner cartoonist, but people who are already working on comics and are maybe like stuck in a project or just like want some feedback on a you know long-term basis. Um, and uh, that's something I'm just doing sort of baby steps, but I started in the fall with a few clients uh, and it's been pretty rewarding. It came out of work I did actually also at this sequential artist workshop uh, where I, they have a one-year program and I come in once a year and, and act as a sort of mentor over a couple weeks while they're working on their final projects. And it's more of a group setting, but you know, people just show their work and we do a little quick critique, talk about troubleshooting, but talk about also more generally about like getting into the comics world. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know I, I have this like weird background where I come out of mini comics and indie stuff, but I've also done coloring for Marvel and DC. And I was, you know, I've written, we didn't even get in talking about our, the textbooks that Jessica and I did, Enough. drawing words and writing pictures and mastering <laughs> comics, which were published by first second back at the uh, two, well, 2000, like alongside our children, you know, 2007 and 2000, 2008 and 2012, our kids were born in 2007 and 2010. So, okay. Um, and, uh, so, uh, oh yeah. Speaking of the, the InDesign scripting method, we, we do talk about that in our, in mastering comics, I think has a little section on that. So you can look that one up. I'll send you the links. Cool. Um, but, um, Jessica and I were also the series editors of the Best American Comics. Anyway, I'm just doing my CV yeah. here, but yeah. yeah. So it's like I've, I've been an editor, been an artist, but basically, you know, primarily I'm an artist. Like the, the last few years have been really great for me because I, you know, through the 2000s, I was doing so much stuff, teaching full time and doing these textbooks and a lot of other, you know, comics adjacent work um, that I started to kind of lose my self-identity as a cartoonist. I started to become afraid I was going to be, oh, that guy who did that exercise and style book back, you know, in the early 2000s. Sure. Um, and since Ex Libris and Bridge came out and also Drawn Onward, which, you know, was 2015 or so, um, I feel like I've, you know, hit the ground running again and I'm back on as a, you know, cartoonist primarily 
Riley, who occasionally does other stuff. Um, but one of those things is is coaching. So people that are interested in getting some feedback from you know fellow professional, that's something that I'm uh, I'm doing now. So I, I can uh, give you some links for that. For the yeah, I'll put, I mean I'll put all that stuff, everything you give me. I'll put it in the description um, so people can get in touch with you one way or the other, or follow you on Instagram mm -hmm. and uh, or whatever you prefer. Yeah in, uh, yeah. in terms of socials, um, you know, Instagram is really my main place. I interact. I'm, I'm lurking on Twitter and, <laughs> and Facebook. I don't really interact either of those places very Same. often, but, um, except I, well, yeah, I can't, I can't remember if I, I met you through Twitter or Instagram. I think it was, it was Instagram. Instagram. There was some little story of interest in 99 ways to tell a story. Um, yeah. Which occasionally gets, you know, endlessly gratifying because that book came out in 2005. Um, but I still, you know, bubbles up or once in a while someone will discover it or just decide they want to share how much they love that book with the world. People um, still buy Robert McKee stuff. So, you know, exactly. Yeah. You know. I got 99. That's just one story. I got 99 of them. So, you know, right. exactly. So take that McKee. Yeah. Um, I think if you make foundational pieces, um, everybody's looking, you know, like if you make bricks, people are always looking to build their own foundation. So you have customers forever. Mm -hmm. That's my theory. I just made it up. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting journey from that <laughs> book and, I, and it plays into what I was just saying, I think in that, you know, I think what makes it worked ultimately is that um, I did it as an artist and not even though I, you know, I'm already an educator and was teaching, mm -hmm. I didn't do that book to be a pedagogical tool. I did it as a creative exercise. And when I started it, I had no intention. I had no idea that it was going to get even published as a book, much less be, you know, now in its 22nd printing, which is, you know, mm -hmm. amazing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not, I could have made it a more practical thing and had like, you know, lesson plans and stuff like that. Um, but I did it just as on its own. And so it has a kind of like, you discover it and you figure out what you're going to do with it, I guess, um, is an aspect that I think people react to with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess, I guess the, the less prescriptive something can be the, the greater the opportunity for application. I think so. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I hear from people in all kinds of different um, media that have used it. Definitely a lot of filmmaking classes, which isn't too surprising. Um, but even, um, you know, uh, embroidery and like some guy wrote me from uh, England who was like a pastor and he had, he had to write a he had write a sermon and he was blocked and he discovered my comic book and it helped him write better sermons, he said. So, you know, yeah. doing the Lord's work, what can I say? There you go. Look at you. <laughs> Changing lives in every way possible. Yeah. Matt, this is absolutely fantastic talking with you. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Really, really enjoyed this and uh, and I enjoyed I enjoyed Ex Libris and Bridge as well. So I, they're, uh, I, I look, I, I'm sure this is going to make for a great collection. Uh, once you get that contract signed, you can get the work put off to the printer. For sure. Um, have a great trip. Safe Thank trip. You. Enjoy mm -hmm. France. Enjoy Spain. Um, two wonderful places. Love them both. Yeah, enjoy, enjoy your time there. I hope they are, uh, beneficial for you and for everybody you come across i think it's going to be quite exhausting but uh, also exhilarating uh yeah. kind of lightning round of of tours so yeah um, matt thank you for the time and uh talk to everyone next week bye everyone thanks